This is the fifth part in the church in pictures, but it still says part four because it's just a continuation of last week's sermon. Um, had communion last week, and there's a lot to say on this topic of the church as temple. Didn't want to try to rush through it, and so this is just the second half of last week's message. We've been in this series, within a series of the church in pictures. And um, I just want to say up front that there's a lot to cover today, and I know there's a big game. I know there's lots of food maybe on some of your smokers already, and you might be tempted to check your phone on things and and scroll social media when the sermon gets a little boring. Um, But I would just ask, if you could, to honor God with your time and your attention this morning. Um, Some of the things we're going to be talking about, I think, are, are profoundly important for the church. Not that every week isn't that way with God's Word, but sometimes, just especially, there are difficult issues to sort through as a body and I know that some of the things we'll talk about today, believers even disagree about, and I hope we can do that charitably. Um, in fact, the timing was quite something, because just this week I had a wonderful conversation with a, a dear member of our body that has very much to do with what we're talking about, and I, I, I kind of don't like when that happens, because I hate the thought of people thinking I, I crafted a sermon last minute just to respond in, a, in an underhanded way to some conversation that I had, which uh, none of us is that important, I say. So we uh, just trust God's providence in that regard, but uh, there are some difficult issues to sort through in this topic of the church's temple, and so let's dive in. Last week, we began looking at this picture of the church's temple, and we didn't even get to the New Testament to discuss what God means by calling the New Testament church the temple. The reason we didn't get there is because we spent the whole time last week surveying the incredible importance of the physical, literal temple in the Old Testament, which you see again on the screen there. We conducted what you could call a brief survey of Old Testament temple history. And what we learned is that at first, God's presence was solely in heaven, where God has always dwelled. And while he would speak occasionally, as in to Adam and Eve, or to Noah, or to Abraham, or to Moses, he didn't dwell on the earth. He kept his distance because of our sin. But God always wanted closeness with his creation. We know this because that's how he created them, and he called it good. And he took delight in walking and talking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden. And so, while sin sacrificed the closeness of God's presence, while we sacrificed that through Adam, while sin cost us the tender love that we were supposed to enjoy with our Father, God set into motion his plan immediately to restore what was lost. And he actually had created that plan long before he even put it into motion. So the tent that we talked about and then the temple were the first phases of that plan of God to restore what was lost. After allowing his glory, his presence to fill this portable tent of meeting, which would be moved around the wilderness, God eventually led Solomon to build a temple that would be a place of relative permanence for his presence. And yet, even then, God's presence would only be on earth among people in a very limited, restricted way. There was still distance between God and man, even when his presence filled the temple. And we see this very vividly, as I showed you the picture last week, that people had to dwell on the outside of the temple courts, which was a powerful image of even though God has come to dwell among people, they are still kept at a distance on the outside of his holy presence. Only once a year and under the strictest of conditions could the high priest, who was himself an imperfect mediator, enter God's presence to make atonement for the sins of the people. But otherwise, the people remained on the outside. 
still in their fear, still in their distance, still in their guilt. Although the guilt was temporarily relieved through the temporary sacrifices. So that old system, that old temple, it was imperfect. It was not meant to last. It didn't solve man's ultimate problem, which negatively stated was sin and guilt. More positively stated was a lack of God's close presence. That is to say, human beings desperately need their sins forgiven, yes, but what then? Then, after forgiveness, what they also desperately need is closeness with their father. They need not just to be forgiven, but they need to have their fear of punishment and wrath and destruction melted away as they run into God's arms, just like one of the prodigal sons who ran into the arms of the father. And thank you, Blaze. I wouldn't have always worded it as one of the prodigal sons. It's been a wonderful study at Men's Breakfast. Isn't that exactly what's lacking, though, in so many homes still today? Broken homes? And thank you, Matt, for praying for that. Isn't that one of the greatest causes of all the suffering in the most vulnerable, the children in our world? Isn't that one of the root causes of all the sadness and the despair and the hurt and the unending tears? All across our world, our children with a desperate need in their hearts to have intimacy with their parents, to find safety there, to find security in these wide open arms that while these hands can be firm and discipline them in love, nonetheless, these hands are connected to arms that are always open, not just to receive them, but to protect them. And yet instead, what do so many children know as reality in our world today? In fact, maybe even now a majority of children, what do they know? First off, they often don't even have both parents. And secondly, when they do, there's often cruelty in the home. There's often abuse. There's often unchecked sin. There's often estrangement, insecurity, fear, unmet longings in the heart. The list goes on. And so do you see why the temple was so critically important in the Old Testament? It was God's incredibly gracious way of communicating to his lost, estranged, sinful, broken children, his spiritual orphans, I will make a way for you to come back to me. I will make a way so that you will not forever remain on the outside of my presence. My presence, which is life, which is light, which is hope and love. I will come to you. I will open a door to you and you won't have to fear any longer that my wrath will consume you in your sin. That's God's statement through the temple. And if you recall, there was always a door, wasn't there? There was always a curtain. And even though God had so graciously come to make his presence known in a limited capacity on the earth, nonetheless, there was that great temple barrier. It signified a barrier that yet remained between holy God and sinful people, despite whisperings of hope from God that his presence once again would dwell among men and women. So in the Old Testament, the temple we see was just a foreshadowing. It was just a precursor. It was a shadow, a type, a sign pointing to a better way, an ultimate way that was coming. And we must also recall that this temple was seen as the, the whole epicenter of Jewish life, the most holy place, one not to be taken lightly. Why? Because it was the one place where the holy presence of the living God dwelt upon the earth. 
And as awesome as that was, and as exciting as that was for God's people to have the temple, there was still lingering fear on the parts of his people because, yes, here was this glorious temple housing the incomparable God of the universe, but no one could go in. No one could go in. I mean, yes, one person once a year under the strictest restrictions, but virtually, I mean, for all intents and purposes, nobody could go into God's presence, even though God was now among men. So yeah, there was a glimmer of hope, but also these great unmet longings and an ongoing distance between a loving father and his sinful, estranged sons and daughters. But the father promised a time was coming, a time would surely come when no one would be far off and no one would have to teach anyone what it meant to know the Lord, what it was to love and to know him and serve him because all his people on this day, when this day came, would know him in the most personal way. That was the most fascinating way that God put that through the mouth of the prophet, wasn't it? No longer will you have to teach one another saying, know the Lord. Let's look at this passage. And I, I just want to let you know, even though there's, there's some longer scriptures, I put them all on the screen today just to try to save time because we have a lot to cover. So let's look together at Jeremiah 31. Speaking of this time through the mouth of the prophet, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer, this is so interesting, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they all will know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Isn't that a fascinating passage? No one will teach any longer their neighbor saying, know the Lord. Why is it worded that way? What an interesting phrase. Well, we have to see, back then, the Holy Spirit had not been poured out on all the world, on all flesh. Back then, you had to teach just theoretical knowledge of what it meant to, to know and walk with the Lord. Here's who he is. Here's what we see he's done in the past. Here's what you need to do to follow him. Here's the covenant. I mean, yeah, there were an exceptional few in whom God put his spirit who knew him very intimately and powerfully, but by and large, this was something kind of external to them that was like an umbrella over them. And so you had to teach someone what it meant to know the Lord by imparting knowledge and history and how to walk in his ways. Because people did not yet know him in the most personal and powerful way that would come later through the Holy Spirit in the gospel. So you could only teach someone what it meant to know and to walk. And of course, people were still saved back then in Old Testament times by faith in God. This is very clear in Romans 4. Abraham believed God when God made a promise to him and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was saved because he had faith in God and trusted God's promise. And so they were saved, but it was saved in faith that looked forward to the Messiah. This was before the days of the gospel. A Messiah who would come and eventually would so radically change everything that one day all would be able to know this God personally, powerfully, with such tenderness and closeness. That would only come as Jeremiah prophesied when what main condition was met, when God would remove 
the wickedness and transgression of the people. Then they could truly know him as a father. You remember how they used to have to worship in that Old Testament temple? Remember all the animal sacrifices? What a bloody business worship was in the Old Testament. What a mess. What a constant reminder of the present reality of sin and guilt. All those animal sacrifices, what were they? They were just temporary foreshadowing means of the penalty of sin. And what God was saying through the animal sacrifice is what he's willing to put there, the punishment for the sin of the people on hold, as though on credit. He's going to stay his hand for the time being. Those were temporary, imperfect means of sin removal. It's like God put a stop pay on his wrath for the moment. He stored up his judgment instead of dispensing it as sin occurred. He withheld it. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 speaks of this. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped. For the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So we see the old system under the old law in the old physical temple. It was never meant to last It was never going to restore that which was lost in the garden, namely, closeness with God. Which again, the great cost of sin was that. In our sin, we were cut off from the presence of God, from spiritual life. We became dead spiritually. Ephesians 2.1 alludes to this. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. So again, the temple, what did it represent? Not just the place on earth where God's presence was, where God could be found, but it was God's first real gesture to man. I will make a way for your death to become life and for the distance to become closeness. And thus the temple became the epicenter, the absolute center of Jewish life and worship. Everything meaningful about Jewish life and worship revolved around the temple, even though it was not an ultimate means of salvation. But in the days of the temple, here's what was really going on, Romans 3.25. In God's forbearance, in case you're fuzzy on that word, it means his refraining, God's holding back, he refrained from something. In his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Until what? Until when? Until the true temple came to earth. And this is a hugely pivotal part of this discussion. Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2, we read this. Jesus left what? The temple. And was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Why would they feel the need to do that? What was the significance of that? The temple is incredible in terms of human achievement in architecture and structure. 
all the stones cut so perfectly, as perfectly as humanly possible. The massive walls, the beautiful architecture. Jesus, look at the buildings. And what does Jesus say? Do you see all these things? He asked, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. That's what Jesus thinks of their second temple. That was a huge statement for him to make. And in a lot, the eyes of many, hugely blasphemous and offensive. And it's very interesting what he said. That temple, that second temple, that imperfect means of atonement, that temporary system of people having access to God, it would be destroyed? Jesus is saying, what else does the Bible have to say about a temple, a place where holy God meets sinful humanity, about that temple being destroyed and then rebuilt? John 2, 13, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem in what? The temple courts. He found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, is it the actual temple structure that Jesus is so deeply upset about? I mean, how did we just read that he thinks about the temple? And this whole thing's going to be destroyed. And so why is he so upset? Is it over the actual sacrilege of the commerce within the walls of stone? No, he's upset over the wickedness that's happening within the walls of the heart, the human soul. That's the house that has been so profaned, where the holy presence of God is to dwell and to rule. The Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And then what does Jesus say? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. What do you suppose that this refers to? Yeah, it's, not the, it's not the stones. He's referring to himself. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Can you imagine that? And it felt like two and a half, three years was a long time for us to get into this building. 46 years, what an, what an undertaking. I mean, that's a lifetime for a lot of people in this day and age, as far as life expectancy goes. How many people saw it started and didn't live to see it completed? It was their pride and joy, the center of their lives. And then Jesus is making these startling claims. Destroy this temple, I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So here we have the paradigm shift. Here's where everything changes. Here is the monumental shift in the Bible's teaching on the significance of the temple. Have you ever heard the phrase, Elvis has left the building? From what I understand, back in the days of Elvis, after a show, there'd be an announcer who would, who would famously say those words, Elvis has left the building, or maybe it developed later on, and I'm misinformed. But 
despite it having perhaps an original literal meaning at an Elvis concert, it's actually interesting because that figure of speech has grown to take on new meaning in American language and understanding. It's a colloquialism now. And what that phrase, Elvis has left the building, really means now is that something significant is definitely over. Or someone important has left and is never coming back. That's now what that phrase essentially means. Something very significant is officially over for good, or someone very important has left and is never coming back. Brothers and sisters, in a desperate attempt to downplay or forget about the horrible, sinful inclinations of our hearts, think of how tempted we are still to try to ascribe holiness to structures that God has left the building. It's still within our flesh to want to do this. But he's left the building and he's not coming back. How tempted are human beings, religious human beings, still to this day, how tempted are we to ascribe some of God's holiness to inanimate objects and to rooms and to things, to call things holy, to call relics and temples holy that God has said are nothing in his eyes. Think of the rosaries that people will, will white-knuckle in desperate prayer as though that, that thing they hold in their hand has some kind of holy significance that gives power or deliverance in ways that holy God in his presence can't do just by himself. Think of the sacred candles that are lit in hopes that God will actually hear a prayer for a sick loved one. Think of the incredible ornateness of monasteries and cathedrals that you walk in and you have this sense of awe like you walked into a divine corridor. Think of the stained glass. Think of the massive pipe organs and how we just imbue this kind of holiness to them, this magnificence. Think of the crucifixes, the depictions of Jesus. Think of the censers and the robes and the chalices. All significant things, because significant in a bad way, because it's human effort to ascribe holiness into things as though there's some kind of external object or temple in which God will meet us if we try really hard to approach him in these ways. Why are humans still desperately trying to do this, to ascribe God's holiness to things? It's because I think we still feel at times this peculiar distance from him, and we want to bridge that. There's a distance in our hearts away from God. So if we can do these things, if we can clasp these objects if we can raise our eyes to this or that holy emblem, then maybe God will hear from heaven and move in our lives. We want to get close, as in the days of the temple. We want to get close to the holy, close to the divine, and see him move in our lives. And so if it's through special robes or incantations or rooms or articles or relics, so be it. But all of our tendencies in this way, what do they say of us? We're still trying to get to God on our own means and terms. We still view his presence as somewhere there that we're trying to access. We're showing that we're still at times of people walking in darkness and lamenting the distance between the holy and the profane. But has God not forever redefined the temple? Has Elvis not left the building? Has he not forever removed the barrier that the temple upheld that kept people from his presence? The barrier that kept them from closeness with their father, fellowship with their father. 
that curtain of the temple, it was an impressive work. This was not a blanket you'd throw on yourself for a nap. Probably wouldn't wake up. Heavy, heavy. Huge, woven temple curtain. Symbolizing the barrier between God and man. It was foreboding. It was huge. It separated. And lo and behold, what miraculous event occurred at the moment Jesus died on the cross. Cried out, it is finished. Breathed his last breath. Do you recall? Matthew 27, verse 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top down to the bottom. Amazing. What did this mean? What does this mean? It means at least two monumental things among others. One is it means that while the Jews up to this point had been the sole inheritors of God's word and his promises, while they had enjoyed a privilege of sorts of being his special people and having access to his presence, even so, they were still ultimately on the outside. They didn't want to admit this, but in the depth of their hearts, they were still on the outside. They were still in the darkness, distanced from God because of their sin. But now with the rending of the temple curtain, the veil, now they finally had full access to God. God preached peace to those who were near, meaning near to him. They had his word. They had the temple. They were his special chosen people. Not only so, but the second hugely significant thing this rending of the temple curtain meant was that everyone else, every non-Jew, generally defined as the Gentiles, in the minds of the Jews, the pagans, the lesser thans, those who are outside, those who had never had God's word or his promises, who had always been cut off from his presence, always had been his enemies, now they too had open access to God's presence, an invitation from God himself to know him as savior of peace instead of judge of wrath. Is this not so clear? Look at Ephesians 2.13 with me. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away once, you who were once far away, meaning every non-Jew, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. You're no longer on the outside of the, the temple of God, outside of his presence. You're no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. What kind of household do you think it's referring to? The house where God lives, which is a temple. You're now members of his home, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone from where we draw our name. In him, the whole what? Building. What do you think that's alluding to? It's joined together and rises to become 
Could it be more clear? A holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the paradigm shift. Everything is different now as far as the temple goes. And so do you see how significant it is when Jesus says in John 2, 19, destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. The temple he had spoken of was his body. And so friends, as wonderful as it is to now be in this building, may we be quick to repent if we ever dare to take away from the awesome truth of what the Bible means by the new temple. By once again reverting back, may we never revert back to ascribing some kind of sacredness or holiness to man-made structures of plaster and stone and paint and carpet. Could God have been more clear to us in his word on this issue? Do you remember Stephen, the first martyr, incredible man of God, full of God's spirit, preaches this magnificent sermon right before he's brutally executed by people throwing stones at him until he's dead? This amazing sermon in Acts 7, you, you should read the whole thing if you haven't lately, but in verse 44, we, we hear him preaching this to the Jews. Our ancestors had what? The tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Do you remember that from last week's readings? David had it in his heart to build God a house, a temple. God says, thank you very much, but your son will do that. It was Solomon in verse 47. It was Solomon who built a house for him. And then what, is, what does Stephen say in this mic-dropping moment? However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. Friends, the Most High God does not live in houses made by human hands. He does not, period. And yet in our hearts, we try to ascribe holiness to inanimate things and objects and rooms. And sometimes we even try to ascribe holiness to inanimate things, non-tangibles, like holy days and weeks and seasons and years and months. I'm not saying those things are all bad, always. They, they might be a means of you growing in your discipleship, but maybe it's worth rethinking how much stock we put into a season like Lent or Advent when we just want so much to have something extra holy and sacred that we can approach to try to connect with the divine. Galatians 4, 9 through 10. But now that you know God, like the barrier's down, the presence is available, accessible. And just to make sure we keep things in their proper place in God's sovereignty, or rather, now that you're known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. Again, I'm not making a blanket statement that that's always wrong and evil. We, I think it, it's very meaningful how we can lay aside special times and days, Christmas, Easter, some of these other occasions where we can think specifically about some of the truths of Scripture. But how much stock do we put in the sacredness of those days and those events? 
How much do we think it connects us to God in ways that we weren't connected before? Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, don't you think we should listen up when God says, here's what's reality, here's what's real, here's what's true? Reality is found in Christ, is what Paul says. Friends, God is holy. He is so holy. And while he used to ascribe some of his holiness to the objects of the temple and the furniture and the walls, in a limited way, he did that in the Old Testament temple. It was a sacred house. There were intangible days and festivals that were holy. He has now, in these last days, this last period of human history, he has made the human heart and soul his dwelling place, where his holy presence lives. That's now what he has done. Himself being the ultimate temple and holy house, his body being that holy temple, and now he calls us to to be grafted into that body, to be brought into that living room, to be made a part of that temple, alive in him. That and that alone should be the focus of our understanding of what is holy and what it means to be a holy temple. And I told you at the beginning of this, there's a few hard issues to sort through with this topic. And one of those, I, don't, I certainly don't mean to, to grieve or wound anyone in this. And, and I've been the one to say these words many times in my life when I was younger. But I would encourage any of you who are here today that might be tempted in this way, I'd encourage you to even reconsider how you reference the passage of Scripture that says where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Again, this isn't a huge thing. But we have to see in Matthew 18, that utterance of Jesus had only to do with the context of discipline in the church over sin that was not being repented of. Because church life can be messy in the body. We sin against each other and offend each other and there's yucky emotions and there's hurt feelings and there's personal offense. And Jesus was saying to his disciples, when you're dealing with offended brothers and sisters and you go and you try to win them over through repentance and they don't listen, take two or three witnesses with you And what does he say? Anything that you agree on judicially in my name, I'm with you. You have my authority. Despite the offense, despite the hurt feelings, you represent me and I'm with you in that judgment, in that verdict. On the the testimony of two or three witnesses, will this be established? So I'm with you when you make your rendering if you're godly leaders and brothers and sisters who are following my path. That's what Jesus meant when he said two or three and the, the difficulty when, and again, I've said this many times when we have a prayer meeting when we're young. I mean, it just feels right. It feels good to say, Lord, you promised if two or three are gathered, you're there with them. But what's the implication? If I come to a prayer meeting by myself, the implication is that Jesus is not with me in as special of a way as he would be if one other Christian brother or sister would have joined me. That there's some added spiritual significance or deeper holiness of his presence that's now present and available because of the two or three or more instead of just the one. 
Again, I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad. When that comes up in a prayer meeting that we have here, I don't say anything. I'm not like the context police that's going to issue you a citation. I'd have a lot of citations if that was the case. It's not a big deal. I'm not, I'm not going to make an issue of it. It's just so often we say how much we exalt and submit ourselves to God's word in every detail until we don't want to, until it's inconvenient or until it confronts something in us. I bet there are almost no genuine believers in this room who we, we haven't said that at some point, and we mean well. But how important to know with the, the concept of temple that if just you are here, he is with you. He is in you. His presence is there. Each individual Christian is now the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3.9 For we are co-workers in God's service. Remember when we talked about the church as crops in a field? You are God's field, but then what does he say? You, the church, you're God's building. You're his temple. You're his house. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Don't you know, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. What a dire warning to those forces in the world that would persecute the church. There's a special notice God takes of martyrs. We read in Revelation of their blood crying out, their innocent blood. And there is a specific reckoning coming for those that have destroyed the temple of God, the people of God. But you know what else? This is a warning we need to take to heart personally because of the ways we destroy God's temple, by destroying our own bodies. So it's a warning not just to the world, the wicked world that would persecute the church, but to us as well. Do not destroy your own life. And do not destroy other believers' lives. Because to be a born-again, spirit-filled, regenerate, forgiven believer in Jesus is to become a temple, a holy temple where his spirit dwells. And how can we keep inviting the profane to dwell in this temple alongside of the holy? How can it work? And so let us be done. Here's another, since we're on the, the, the topic of hard things to sort through as a church body, here's another one. Let us be done with this whole charade of we don't say certain words in church because this building is a holy place. And yet you go from this room and talk completely different at home or at work? Are you more vulgar or profane then? Why? Because if scripture is to be believed, then you are just as much in church everywhere you go, every minute of every day as you are in this hour in this building. One of my biggest personal frustrations in ministry has been all the times that people will swear or say something around me and then cover their mouths and say, oops, sorry, you're not supposed to talk like that around the pastor. I just... First, I just want to be like Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14, 14 and 15. When the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. I want to do that sometimes, but I don't tear my shirt because then people would have to see the unholiness of me with no shirt. <laughs> That's just as profane. <laughs> But friends, the pastor is not special or holy in a way that every believer isn't. 1 Peter 2.9, 
Tyler, I had this one mixed up in the first service. Yep, you got it. Good job, buddy. What do we read? But you, the church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It used to be just the priest who was the one to mediate and to represent holy God to sinful people. And he was the special one that would have this connection to God and like this special phone line to the holy. It's not that way. God has declared every one of his people as priests ministering the gospel and representing him to a lost world. Mediating. And so the issue is not, don't talk a certain way in church, in the building, or around the pastor. The issue is, does God have your heart? Is the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? Is he not living in you? Are you not, therefore, in church 24 hours a day, seven days a week? I mean, does God hide his eyes from all of our profanity and perversity and lust and pride and deceit and gossip so long as we're not around the pastor or we're not in the church building? Does he turn his gaze away? It's not buildings that are holy. It's not what we eat or drink that matters. It's not religious calendars that are significant. It's what's living in our hearts while the name of Christ is upon our lips is what matters. Jesus in Matthew 15 verse 8, these people honor me with their lips. Oh, I can't say that at this time or in this place or around that person. That's lip service. But their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, this is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, this is hilarious, by the way, <laughs> the disciples coming to Jesus. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? See, it's not just in the 21st century that we live under the tyranny of the offended and the hurt feelings. You offended the Pharisees. I can't, oh, I wish I could know all the things that Jesus might have said in that moment that he didn't. And yet he did, he spoke so beautifully as only the Son of God could and would. He replied, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both fall into a pit. Peter, being often the assertive one, explained the parable to us. Jesus, since he's in the mood to keep offending people, says, are you still so dull? Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth, I mean, Jesus is like, do I have to give you the, the basic body function lesson here? What goes into the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body. I don't have any slides for you. You're welcome. <laughs> but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. And those defile a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands or a thousand of our other rules that we've made up, those are not what defile. Brothers and sisters, God is not concerned with our rules. He is concerned with what is living in our hearts. Is it sin living there? Do we just dress it up and cover it and rein it in for an hour while we're in this building? That's hypocrisy, which left unchecked will destroy a heart and a soul, if not repented of. Or is God's Holy Spirit living in our hearts, producing holy affections and desires and behaviors no matter where we are? 
or who we're with, maybe especially when we're by ourselves. How's our church attendance then? And if you think I'm carrying myself up here as one who has this all together, that is not the case. It is to my utter shame and bitter regret that I have it in me to be a different person, at the very least in the secret places of my own mind and heart, when I'm at church versus when I can be other places. Has this not been the struggle of our lives? It's been the struggle of mine. Slow, painful conformity to God's image to where we're the same person, no matter where we are, who we're with. I don't have this all together. I pray regularly for God's forgiveness for this and repent of it. And I hope and pray to see it increasingly changed in my life as this verse proves true, 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Slow progress in sanctification. Which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. If you remember from this time long, long ago in a land far, far away, we were in the book of Proverbs. There's a few chuckles there. And somewhere in that great eon of time, perhaps a few of you remember when we talked about this issue in the book of Proverbs for a sermon or two, the issue of duplicity. Being two different people based on where we're at and who we're around. And what God has to say about duplicitous living. The goal of our faith and worship is to become like Christ, which is to say to become the same one person no matter where we are. Increasingly sanctified and devoted to God in holy surrender and heartfelt worship. And so the the honest truth of it all is this. I don't care what you say or don't say around me or around the pastor at the store or anywhere else. I think what God cares about, how do you talk to your wife and kids when you're at home? or your coworkers at work? Or what thoughts do you think when you're in the privacy of your own room by yourself? Friends, we are the temple of God, and we must take this more seriously. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 is what I call a scary list of Paul. He has a few scary lists that he put in the Bible. And I think it's important to comfort believers to know that when he refers to these general lifestyles and behaviors. He's talking about people who practice these things without repentance, without wanting God to change this part of them and and fighting to see it overcome. They've made it a lifestyle. It's something they celebrate that they're okay with. And I'm not saying you shouldn't take it seriously if you're a believer, but I am saying that there's a fine line between despair and like, man, all of us identify with something on this list. We're done for. Between despair, but also taking God seriously with holy living. But here's one of Paul's scary statements, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says to the church, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, none of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And he goes on a few verses later to say this, verse 15, do you not know your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. And again, that's not to say God will never forgive the one who does these things, but there has to be a posture of repentance, of agreeing with God about this list. And saying, God, I desperately need your mercy. 
And day by day, would you help me to see my flesh crucified with Christ and put to death as you change me from glory to glory into your image. There are many temptations in the world and sins that we face that God has kind of commanded us to to man and woman up and to fight and to battle, but sexuality is not one of those categories. And a few verses later, he says in verse 18, flee from it. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. We'll have to unpack all that another day. The point for today is this. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So inviting sin into the holy temple of God, not at all meaning this kind of building or some other religious structure in the world, but rather meaning the human heart, that always comes at a price. It always comes at a cost. For the true believer, what are those costs that we pay? What are those prices to invite the profane to live in the same temple as the holy? Sometimes the cost that we pay, the price that we pay, is a loss of awareness of God's presence. This was the case with David, wasn't it? In Psalm 51, after his great transgression, what did he cry out to God? Don't cast me from your presence. But would you restore your Holy Spirit to me, the joy of my salvation? There was a cost, there was a price to be paid for his transgression. He had, he had a loss of the awareness of God's presence in his life. And God hadn't left him. Isn't that the beautiful truth? God hadn't left David, but there was a, there was a distance that was put between them for a time. Or, for the true believer, inviting sin into the holy place of the heart might mean God's discipline. Not his judgment, as though you're his enemy, but his discipline because you're his child. Sometimes that's going to hurt. It might be fairly mild. It might be very severe. There are times in Scripture we find that even great sickness and an untimely death has been the result of transgression. That's, a, that's an issue we have to tread lightly on because there are many times that diseases and, and cancers and tumors and other things, they're absolutely not the result of a personal sin. They're the result of living in a fallen world. But shouldn't we always ask when our lives are afflicted, God, is, is this your discipline of me? Is there an issue I need to confront that I know is in there? Don't you at least want to know that your suffering is righteous? That you're suffering with a clean conscience? In the case of the Corinthian church, there were those that even faced an untimely death because of their lack of repentance. And yet they still were addressed as God's people. Disciplined severely by a father. Inviting sin into God's temple, into the human heart and mind, comes sometimes at the price of your joy. It will come at the cost of your peace. You'll be consumed with anxiety at times. It's not to say that anxiety and depression are always the result of sin. But why don't we at least ask that maybe they are? There are many verses in the Psalms that indicate such is sometimes the case. It's our transgression that robs us of sleep. It's our transgression that robs us of peace. There are other times that there are genuine organic chemical issues in a human mind that have to be treated medically. But why aren't we we at least asking the question when we're facing a malady? God, have I brought something into your temple that's costing me dearly? Sometimes it comes at the price of assurance of salvation. 
we begin to question and wonder, God, I don't really know who I am or who you are or where we're at or if I'm even going to see you or if you're even there. That's the price that's sometimes paid by the believer. Sometimes the cost is effectiveness in ministry. Sometimes we pay, we pay the incredibly precious price of valuable relationships. And after all these things, can we ask, is the cost worth it? Is this a price we want to pay? In our flesh, we're so deceived into thinking that the price is affordable because sin has such a sweet taste to it. We'd be lying, many of us, if we said that wasn't true. There's a sweet taste to it. There's a thrill of the flesh. There's a rush. But don't we know from experience how quickly it turns to poison and rot when it hits the inward parts of who we are? It corrupts us from the inside out, robs us of everything we hold dear. Thank you, guys. You've been very patient and have listened very respectfully as we've tried to sort through God's word. Let me make this one last point about the temple. The temple has always been known as what in the Bible, even in the Old Testament? It's a place where worship happens. Yeah? It's the place where worship happens. What does that look like here and now when his presence doesn't fill a building, but it fills a human being, gathered, human beings gathered together? What does worship now look like? In his word, God no longer says, make sure you present a man-made building or room or structure the right way for worship. Make sure you do that. Now what God says is this, Romans 12, 1 through 2, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's church. That's church. That's the temple. It's beautiful. May we honor the Lord in his temple, in our lives, in our hearts, and praise God that he gives us pictures of what it means to be the church, don't you think? Lord, thank you for your faithfulness through your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that brings these truths and these realities to life in us. Lord, would you pierce our hearts this morning? May we have just a, a moment here to ponder and to repent and to confess how very often we have invited the profane to, to dwell in the same room as the holy. God, if we are your temple, may we be your temple. May we honor you. May our bodies be houses fit for the most high God. May we be a kingdom of priests representing you to a world that is drowning in its blindness and its selfishness and its sin. God, how can we reach them with the good news of the gospel if we're just as entangled, if we're just as hopeless? So set us free this morning by your spirit, I pray. God, why, why not? Why could this not be a moment where you break actual change, chains binding the hearts of people? Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your great love for us, your people. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.